Would you pray with me? Father, we do want to surrender to you. And Lord Jesus, we want to hear your call in our lives. That, that call that we would be your followers. We want to give ourselves to you. We pray now as we open up your word that you would, again, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Help us to learn and apply what you want for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing in our sermon series here where we're looking at Matthew chapters 1 through 7. We're, we're about halfway through now. We're going to look at the end of chapter 4. And um, up until now, you could say that Jesus' life had been pretty private. There was the one sort of public moment with his baptism there, but, but really for the most part, it wasn't like Jesus had made a big splash yet in the area. Now, there was lots of important things that we had to learn there about his life and some things for us to apply. But what we're going to see now is, as we look at the second half of chapter 4, is Jesus heading into his public ministry. And as I've been saying so far, one of the key themes that I've picked out of Matthew chapters 1 through 4 is this idea that God has brought our Savior to us and we need to figure out how to respond to him. So today we're going to look at the start of Jesus' public ministry and we're going to see, see three snapshots in, of what would in many ways define Jesus' public ministry. And as we're looking at these, I want you to be thinking, how is it that I need to respond to Jesus? He's, he's gone public now. And as he begins his public ministry, we should really pay special attention to what it is that he has to say here so that we can figure out how we should respond to him. But before we get into those three snapshots of his public ministry, I want to look at the context of verses 12 through 16. So this is Matthew 4, verses 12 through 16. When Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Okay, so again, John the Baptist had just been put in prison. Now, he had a really important ministry of preparing the way for Jesus, but then he was put in prison, and now it was time for Jesus to go public. And Jesus did this in Galilee. Uh, it was said here to be a dark place. It's in the region known in Israel's history as the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And he did it in fulfillment of scripture. Here, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 2. And in that section, if you were to read Isaiah, the context of it, in chapters 8 and chapters, chapter 9, you would see darkness there. And it was, a, it was more than just the darkness of the sun not shining. It's not like the, the sun didn't shine on Galilee as much as it's shown on other places. It was talking about a spiritual darkness. Also, there was kind of a, a national darkness there. Is that particular place in Israel was a, a place in history of great sadness. It was the place that the captives were taken away as they were on their way off to Assyria. So when Isaiah is speaking of that specific geography, he's talking about it being a place of darkness. But again, it's more than just a physical darkness. It was a spiritual darkness. He went on to say in Isaiah that there was this darkness because the people weren't seeking the Lord or his word. So when Jesus came, he came as a light shining in the darkness. 
Now in the letter of 1 John in the New Testament, which I, I think is a wonderful one, 1 John, especially chapter 1, you read there about how God is light and how he wants us to walk with him in the light. It's this wonderful reminder for us that, that God is not hiding from us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to walk with him. Now previously, people weren't looking to God's word. But now God sent one who is called the word. Now it's interesting to me that, uh, that Jesus started his ministry here in Galilee and, and not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the spiritual center of Israel. Why didn't he start his ministry there? Well, one was to fulfill this scripture. But another reason, I think, is because Galilee was an interesting place. It was a, a mix of both Jews and Gentiles. Perhaps uh, foreshadowing how God's gospel message was to go forth to all the nations. So when you put all of this together, something becomes clear. God sent his light into the darkness so that people would know how to walk with him. And again, let's just stop and take comfort at that right now. God wants you to know how to walk with him. Maybe that's not been your perception of who God is, or maybe you're in a difficult time right now, or perhaps even a dark time of life, but let's just be encouraged right here. God sent his light into darkness so that we could know him and walk with him. So if that's who Jesus is, the light of the world, and he came into this dark place, and that's where he started his public ministry, let's now take a look at these three snapshots of, of what happened as he began his public ministry. The first one of these set snapshots is just one verse long, verse 17. I want to read it for you now. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So if that verse sounds familiar to you, it should. It's the same exact thing that John the Baptist said just one chapter earlier in 3.2. John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Word for word. So Jesus starts off his ministry saying something that John the Baptist had already been saying. And, and it's not like John the Baptist made up this message either. In fact, the, the prophets of Israel for a long time had been telling the people to repent, to flee from their sins. So it's interesting to me. There, there are lots of things that Jesus would change. He brought in the new covenant. But as he started his public ministry, there's this reminder that he came very much in line with what God had already been doing in his people, calling them to repentance. Now, three weeks ago when I preached on John the Baptist's message, I preached in great detail about what repentance means. And again, if you ever miss a sermon here at Cornerstone, you can go online and find them. And if you want to listen to me go in detail about what repentance is, you can listen to that. I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights here today of what repentance is. Repentance means to flee from sin, to confess to God that we've done something wrong and then to turn away from it. The problem with us is that we sin. And it's really a problem in two different ways. The first way is in our mind. Something has gone wrong when we sin. Something has gone wrong in our minds. Something about us has tricked ourselves or, or justified ourselves into doing something that we shouldn't do. In one sense, we know that it's wrong, but in another sense, there's something that goes on, this little mind game that we play perhaps inside our own minds, and we just convince ourselves, no, 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 it's okay for me to do that. And then the second thing that goes wrong in sin is when we actually commit it, the physical act of committing the sin. Not just in our mind anymore, it's something that we have done. Repentance 
means to turn away from sin in both our actions and in our thoughts. It means asking God for the strength not to do those sins anymore, and it also means asking God to change our minds about these sins so that we, we recognize what we're doing and we recognize that it was wrong. Uh, my, my wife had a great reminder for, the, for our children this week, and it was for me too, that when we, when we say we're sorry, we shouldn't just say we're sorry, we should also say that we were wrong. It's not just that, you know, whoops, I made a mistake. It's that I did something wrong. That's what repentance is. And that's how Jesus started off his public ministry here. For Jesus to start that way is a reminder for us that the only way that we come to Jesus, really the way that we come to Jesus, is through repentance. Yes, we have to have faith. We also have to have this piece of repentance here. And I hope you know that. I hope you heard that when you heard the gospel message. That, yes, coming to Jesus means that we receive him as Savior and Lord. Yes, it means that we have forgiveness and eternal life. But part and parcel of that is that we flee from our sin. We don't come to Jesus as perfect people. We come to him as sinners. Sinners in need of repentance and forgiveness. So that's how Jesus started off his ministry. When we meet the Holy One of God, we should want to turn away from our sins. When we see how good and perfect he is and how imperfect we are, we should want to flee from our sins. And as I've said before, this repentance in coming to Jesus isn't just an initial thing. That's, if there are any of you out there who don't yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord, that's how you come to know him. You receive him by faith and you confess your sins to him. But for those of us who have been walking with the Lord, that's how we're supposed to continue to walk with him. For those of us, myself included, who still continue to sin, we are to continue to repent. That's how we continue to come to Jesus. And here John the Baptist's words from 3.8 are very appropriate again, where he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Keeping with repentance. Okay, so there's the first snapshot of Jesus' public ministry, calling people to repentance. The second snapshot of Jesus' public ministry is in verses 18 through 22, and I want to read those for you. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, at first glance, this might seem like an impulsive decision from the disciples. Do we have any impulsive people out there? Any of you, uh, you go through the grocery line and you, you actually buy what's on the, you know, the magazines and the candy that they have there? It's funny how the stuff they have there really isn't the good stuff. It's just the stuff, oh, yeah, yeah, I want that. Doesn't it seem like, in some ways, kind of an impulsive decision that these disciples made to just leave their father, leave their boats, leave their jobs, and follow Jesus? Well, one thing I read this week is that as you look at the other Gospels, it looks like these people were already somewhat familiar with Jesus. But even if not, the important point here is that this is the Lord Jesus Christ calling them. The theologian Craig Blomberg said, when Jesus calls a person to discipleship, there is no excuse for delay or disobedience. 
So these disciples, they, they did exactly the thing that they were supposed to do, these fishermen. They got out of their boats and they followed Jesus when he called them. He has authority to call us. So what we see in these verses is Jesus calling people and people becoming his disciples. We don't see the word disciple in this passage, but if you just fast forward to the very beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, they're called disciples there. A disciple is simply a learner or a follower. That's what the word means. One who learns from another. One who follows another. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted for these people. And I would say that's still what Jesus wants for us today, is that we would be his disciples, his followers. 23 times in the Gospels. 23 times. I think Tim, it was Tim Pearson who made a bookmark for us years ago. Do you remember that, Tim? It had all 23 of the examples where Jesus said, follow me. Why do you think Jesus said it so many times in the Gospels? I think it's because he meant it. Did, did you say Did somebody say that? Did somebody read Rebecca, where'd it go? All right. Is that scary that you're reading my mind? Or is it <laughs> yes, Todd says. Okay. Did she do it to you too? Yes, okay. 23 times Jesus said, follow me, because he wanted people to follow him. He wanted people to learn from him, to obey him, to become more like him. He wanted people to recognize that he is their master. He is our master. So he called people to follow him. Now I believe that in our sinful nature, every one of us came into this world assuming that we were the master of our own lives that it is so natural for us to make the decisions in our lives based simply on what we want. That's really what it means to be a sinner, to pursue our ways ahead of anything else. And if you keep your eyes open, you see that kind of a life all around you. And if you keep your eyes open, you probably see it in yourself. And I see it in myself more than I'd like to admit. You see, the deception from our enemy and from this world and from our sinful nature is that we should live our lives the way that we want to. But the truth is that Jesus is our master and we are to follow him. <laughs> Both of these stories in verses 18 through 22 the two sets of two fishermen, both end with them following. Look at verse 20. At once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 22, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And, and make no mistake about it, it's not really an ending at all. It was really the beginning of a changed life for these men. These, these four fishermen, their lives were totally changed by Jesus and by the gospel message. They gave their lives for him. And it's interesting to me that when Jesus called them, he didn't just call them to be disciples, he called them to be fishers of men. A fisher of men is somebody who makes disciples. You see, it wasn't just these four fishermen that Jesus wanted. He wanted them to eventually reach other people as well and make disciples of them. So right from the beginning, it's, Jesus called people not only to repentance and not only to follow him, but also to help other people follow him. And, and the reason for all of this is that Jesus has complete authority to make this kind of call in a person's life. In the, in the lives of these four fishermen, in our lives, and in the lives of the people that we meet every day. Jesus has authority to call them to himself. Now, as we think about our lives and the way that our lives have changed, perhaps 
some of you are thinking, well, my, my story isn't quite as dramatic as that. I mean, it was really dramatic here. These people, they were, they were just going about their business and all of a sudden they left and their lives were totally different. And some of you, I've heard many of you share your stories and you, you talk about a gradual process of learning how to walk with God. And I think we all experience that on some level. But I bet that there are a lot of you out there, and, and, and I would even say that most of you out there can probably point to some point in life where something really changed and you became a follower of Christ. For me, I look at when I was age 15, and I, I had been a church attender up until that point, if you would have asked me if I was following Christ, I'm sure I would have said yes as a 13-year-old. Um, I was praying and things like that. But something changed pretty dramatically in me when I was age 15. I remember hearing the gospel message clearly then, this, this wonderful news that, that Jesus Christ came to die for my sins. I had heard that before, and, and I knew that I was a sinner, but what I hadn't heard was this call on my life. Well, what I hadn't heard was this, this idea that Jesus wanted a 24-hour-a-day relationship with me. That, that he wanted to come into my heart and live with me and lead me and guide me. You know, I'd probably heard pieces of those things throughout my life, but for some reason, at that moment, it just became clear to me that that was God's call on my life. And I remember there were, there were lots of thoughts going through my mind. One thought was, that's wonderful news. I'm so I know I'm a sinner, and I'm so grateful that Jesus wants to forgive me. And another thought that I had was, if that's what God wants for me, I want that relationship with him. This 24-hour-a-day thing, that sounds wonderful. Another thought that was going through my mind was, you know what, that makes a lot of sense, because I bet that God is better at running my life than I am. And, and I knew that receiving Jesus at that moment would, would mean that I was giving control of my life to him, and that sounded like a good thing. However, on the other hand, I also remember being somewhat scared and thinking, what's Jesus going to do? I'm going to, on the one hand, I wanted to give my life to him, but on the other hand, I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> if I give it to him. And, and I've said it here many times before, I was scared that he was going to make me be a missionary in Africa. But at that moment, I counted the cost. All these things were going on in my heart, understanding the gospel message, hearing God's call on my life. And by the way, when I talk about God's call on my life, I'm not talking about a call to public ministry. I'm not talking about you know, being a pastor. I'm talking about simply being a disciple, which I think is his call on us, for all of us. When I heard that call in my life, I counted the cost, and I got out of the boat. I said, yes, I will follow and my life changed. Now, to the casual observer something, it, it, it might not have looked like a big change. I'm sure that I struggled with sin you know, that day, maybe just as much as I did the day before. And it's not like I just immediately understood everything I needed to understand. But there was a significant change that happened there inside of my heart in giving my heart to Jesus and in, in letting him lead that significantly changed my life. In fact, I would say it's the biggest life change that's ever happened in me. I think that's what Jesus calls us to. I think that's what we see here in the lives of these disciples. Again, they had probably known things about Jesus before. They, they probably respected him as a teacher. But I think at this moment, something changed where they became his followers, his disciples. Now, our best life is the life where we follow Jesus. When we hear his call on our lives, we are to follow and obey. 
And I hope you've heard him calling you. And again, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about like a call to a career in ministry. I'm talking about a call to be his disciple. I hope you have heard that call in your life. And if not, maybe you're hearing it today for the first time. And yes, your life will change, but it will change for the better because it is God himself who loves you and has great plans for you. Now, obviously, one application of this would be for somebody who needs to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I, I do want to give you that opportunity today when I, pray, when I pray at the end of my sermon to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, to get out of that boat and follow him. But another application is for those of us that have already been walking with Jesus. For me, it was 21 years ago. I know I look like I'm still 15, but I'm actually 36 years old now. And um, one of the ways that I look at my life now is that every day is a recommitment of that decision that I made 21 years ago. Every day is as if I'm saying, I still want to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And if I had to, I'd make that decision again. I don't have to make that decision again because I made it there. But I hope that every day my life shows that decision. And that's what... For those of us who have already received Jesus, that's what our daily walk should be. Continual proof of him as our Lord. It means it's our life goal to follow him. It means that we are to be fishers of men, making disciples too. Because Jesus doesn't just want you. He wants your friends. I've talked about these five categories here a lot. Your friends, your neighbors, your family, your, your co-workers, and your classmates. And I was thinking, oh, I missed one in there, didn't I? Our enemies too. God wants them. In these verses, we see a wonderful snapshot of what it means to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus wanted from these four fishermen. It's what he still wants from us today. And let's move on then to the third snapshot in verses 23 through 25. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news, and that word good news is the exact same as the word gospel, so you could say preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. In verse 23 here, it says that Jesus taught and preached. And we evangelicals shout amen to that. We love to see Jesus teaching and preaching. But then it goes on to say that he healed. And actually the main topic of this this paragraph here is that Jesus healed people. And it doesn't take long to read the Gospels to see Jesus healing a bunch of people. You can read Matthew 8 through 9. It's just like one after the other of people that Jesus was healing. Have you ever stopped and asked why? Why did Jesus do all that healing? I have. I think there are some great answers. I want to walk you through a list of several of them now. So why did Jesus do so much healing? First answer, this one should be obvious, but I think it's one that perhaps too many of us evangelicals have missed or forgotten along the way. And and let me just ask a question first. Um, I want to see a show of hands here. How many of you in here are parents? Okay, how many of you parents, hey, no you're not, okay, Um, how many of you parents have ever, when your child was sick, done something to care for them, or even prayed for your, again, show of hands, how many parents have done that? It looks like about the same number of hands. Why do we do those things for our children when they're sick? Because we love them. We have compassion on them. We want them to get better. 
And if that's how we view our children, how much more do you think our Heavenly Father might view people who are sick? So I think that one of the reasons that we see Jesus doing all these healings is because our Heavenly Father does indeed have compassion on people. So, um, I, I would not fit into the theological category of charismatic. If you were to define what a charismatic person is, that, that would not be me. But I learned something once from listening to a charismatic preacher. Uh, it was back when I was living in La Crosse, Wisconsin. A bunch of students went to see this traveling charismatic preacher as he came through town, and I decided to go with him. And his talk was entitled, The Father Heart of God. And, and I learned something that day about the Father Heart of God. That he loves his children and wants good things for them. So I think that that's one of the great reasons that, that Jesus did these healings is because of the love of God to remind people of that great love. Here's another reason. God is the giver of life. So when, when God sends his son, shouldn't we expect to see some signs of life? God is the creator. Remember, remember when he created he said that everything was very good. But then what happened? We, the human race, messed things up with our sin. Now God has a plan to redeem all of that. But doesn't it make sense then, when the giver of life came to this earth, that we would see signs of life in him? And recreation in him? Reminds me of another similar reason for all these healings. They point ahead to heaven. I did a sermon series a few months ago where we looked in great detail at what heaven is. And it's this wonderful place. It says in heaven there will be no more curse. Remember what the curse was? The curse was God's punishment on us and on the world due to our sin. But in heaven it says that curse will be taken away. It also says there there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So I think that when Jesus came as a foretaste of that victory that he would win on the cross, foretaste of the perfection that we will experience in heaven, he did some of these healings to show that he is the one who has that victory. So these healings of Jesus are meant to point ahead to the final victory. And that leads right into another great reason for these healings. The gospel message is the message of ultimate healing. The worst disease that any of us could ever face is sin. Now every one of us have this sin problem and left unchecked this sin problem would mean eternal separation from God. Every single one of us earned a death penalty by our sin and we could do nothing about it. And left to ourselves we'd be separated from God. But Praise the Lord, we know the gospel message. He sent his son, and his son Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He took his sin upon himself, died on the cross for our sins, rose again victorious, so that anyone who receives him can have complete forgiveness of sins and eternal life. <coughs> Excuse me. It's wonderful news. This gospel message is wonderful news. It talks about our ultimate salvation. But did you know something? In the Bible, oftentimes the word for salvation and healing are the same word. You know, sometimes Bible translators have a difficult time figuring out, should I translate this word as healing or salvation here? And the reason is, is because what salvation is, is really just the ultimate form of healing. 
If sin is our disease, our sickness, salvation is our ultimate healing. So I think that one of the reasons that Jesus went around doing all these healings was to show that he had the power to give the ultimate healing, which is the salvation of our souls. And then one final reason I think Jesus did all these healings, it said that right here, one, one of the ways that I hope you know that you should understand the Bible is to let the context uh, tell you what's going on. And we see the context here. One great reason why Jesus did all these, peop- all these healings, look at verse 25. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Jesus did these healings so that people would follow him. Now, yes, I'm sure that some people got the wrong idea. I'm sure that there were some people that just wanted their physical healing and then they could get on their way with their own lives. But some people did follow him and learn from him. One of my favorite healing stories in the Bible is in Mark 10. It's the story of blind Bartimaeus. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that story. Blind Bartimaeus was sitting by the side of the road and Jesus came into town. And when when Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus, he shouted out for him. And eventually Jesus came to him. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, what do you want me to do? Now what did Bartimaeus say? Did he say, well, uh, I'd like to receive eternal life. That was his greatest need. And, and if he were really in his right mind, that's probably what he should have asked for. But is that what he asked for? No. What did he say? I want to see. And it makes sense, right? He he was blind and he wanted to see. You know, our sin is our worst problem that we face, but it doesn't always feel like it. A broken bone might feel worse. A damaged relationship might feel worse, but our worst problem is sin. But Bartimaeus here didn't quite fully recognize that, and, and when Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do? He said, I want to see. And what did Jesus do? Did he rebuke him and say, oh, you should have asked me for something more important? No. He healed him. But then right after that, this is the part I love, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I think Jesus did these healings because he wanted people to follow him and learn from him. Now on the one hand, we shouldn't need to receive a physical healing in order to recognize God as the Lord of our lives. But I think that God did these things through Jesus to show that he is Lord. Okay. Now, the obvious question that I'm sure that many of you have and that I want to address is this. Should we expect to see healings today? If Jesus was able to do these healings, which he sure was, he did lots and lots and lots of them, and we're his followers, should we expect to see healings today? Well, I want to answer that question. uh, And I want to start off by saying, remember, first of all, our mission is to make disciples. Okay? We're to point people to God. And God is fully able to heal, so maybe he will. And, and one of the things that means for us is that we should by no means attempt to start our own healing ministry apart from God. That's, that's obvious to me. But on the other hand, remember the Great Commission where Jesus told his disciples to make disciples? What did he say right before that? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And what did he say right after it? I am with you always. So I think it's possible because we go in the authority of Jesus Christ that we might see some healings as we go about doing ministry. Now here's how I view it in my ministry. I am not afraid to pray for healing and let God decide if he'll do it. 
I've, I've seen one miraculous healing. Uh, I can tell you that story later if, if you'd like to hear it. But let me give you another verse on this. James 5.14. I, I preached on this one four years ago. It says, Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Four years ago when I preached that, I said, I'm willing to do this for you. If, if you're sick, you can call on me or the other elders and, and we will come and pray for you and anoint you with oil like it says here. We will do that for you. Nobody's taken me up on that offer. But let me just say again, I'm very willing to do that. If you're sick and you would like to pray for healing, you can call on me, the other elders. That's our job. If, if you want that as an expression of your faith to ask for that, we'll do that for you. Now, I don't know if God will choose to heal. Sometimes God does heal. Other times it's God's plan that we would have to persevere through pain, that even we might have to suffer, because suffering is part of God's promise for us, actually, as we continue in this life. But what I do know is that God loves us and that Jesus is healer. So when we see a passage like this, I, I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on this because I feel like too often we evangelicals kind of stand at arm's length from these passages on healing. But instead, what I want you to do is to rejoice that Jesus is healer. I think that when we see these ev evidences of Jesus healing, we should be thankful that God loves us. We should be overjoyed that Jesus is able to bring about this kind of healing. Because if he weren't able to bring about that kind of healing, how could he bring about the greatest healing? The salvation of our souls. So we should rejoice that Jesus is healer. Okay. So those are the three snapshots of what in many ways define Jesus' ministry on earth. Calling people to repentance, calling people to follow him, and healing. And here's the conclusion. Jesus carried the light of the gospel into dark places. And if we want to follow Jesus, we should carry the light of the gospel into dark places too. Remember, Jesus wanted people to follow him, and he still wants that from us. And if we want to follow him, we should pattern our lives after his life. Now, if we take a step back, too, and look at the whole of Matthew so far, what we see is that God has brought his Savior, and we need to figure out how to respond to him. And it's very, very clear how we should respond to him here. We should respond to him in repentance and in following him. If that's what people did in our passage, that's what we're supposed to do. If we want to become more like him, we follow him. We repent of our sins. And we proclaim him as Lord to those around us. So how will you respond? Have you committed your life to following Jesus? If you were in a boat today, and, and Jesus came to you and said, follow me, would you get out of your boat, leave everything, and follow him? Or maybe more appropriately, if you were sitting in church today and you heard Jesus call on your life to follow him, would you do it? Now this isn't the end of Jesus' ministry. He did lots of other things, but I hope what you've seen today is that his desire for you is that you would follow him. So I'm going to close in prayer now. And if there are any of you out there who would like to make that commitment to follow Jesus, maybe for the first time, I'm going to say a prayer that you can just repeat after me just silently in your own heart. And then I'm going to continue on in prayer for all of us that we would continue to follow Jesus. 
God, we're so grateful for this message, this message of you sending light into darkness because you love us and you want us to know you. God, I pray that every person in here would know you, would have salvation through faith in Christ. And if there's anyone in here, Lord, who doesn't yet know you, we just say this prayer to you right now. God, thank you for sending Jesus. I recognize that I am a sinner. I confess my sins to you and repent of them. Please forgive me of my sins. I also pray to receive Jesus as my Savior and my Lord, my Master. Please come into my heart and make me the person you want me to be. And then, Lord, for all of us, whether today is the first day of following you or the 10,000th day of following you, wherever we are in there, Lord, I pray that we would keep following you, that we would trust in you and in your strength and in your love to keep us going, and that we would, day after day, make that recommitment of following Jesus Christ as our Lord. God, I thank you for the life that you have for us, and I pray that we would live that life by faith, constantly seeking you. So for today, Lord, we ask for our daily bread for the strength to follow you the way that we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.